from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Complement Factor H and AMD, Part 2. The Complement Factor H variant has been associated with neovascular AMD alone and with non-neovascular AMD alone. So the association seems to hold true no matter which kind it is. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Brantley has served as a consultant for OSI iTech. No single department of ophthalmology has the best lectures in every field. Open Ophthalmology is a meta-school in which lecturers from different departments have access to ophthalmology residents everywhere. I've seeded this marketplace of ideas with my own course on clinical optics. Who's your department's best lecturer? Let me know and come visit us at openophthalmology.com. Open Ophthalmology. Let a hundred flowers bloom. Today we'll hear the conclusion of my interview with Milam Brantley about Complement Factor H and AMD. Last week's program ended with Dr. Brantley's describing the design of his study. We'll pick up with his answer to that question today. We'll also hear from a listener at the end of today's program. So what we did was, this is a a pretty standard case control study where you have, in in our case, we had 188 cases, uh, patients with AMD, and we had 189 control subjects, that is relatively age-matched subjects um, who did not have age-related macular degeneration according according to our criteria, which in this case was the age-related eye disease categories three or four. And so we gathered, uh, we collected uh, mouthwash samples from these patients, having them... um, uh, rinse with uh, scope mouthwash for 30 seconds and expectorate into a cup. And we then made genomic DNA from this and then used a PCR methodology to uh, genotype each of the samples for the Y402H variant. And, and in the paper, as it's described, the normal that's normal in quotes, allele, is, as I said before, at position 1277, normally the non-variant has a T. Uh, The variant allele has a C at that uh, nucleotide position. So what we're looking for is the T to C polymorphism. As we describe things in the paper, patients then are then genotyped, or controls are then genotyped as TT, having neither copy of the variant allele, TC, having one normal and one variant allele, and CC, having both copies. Now, so what you can do from that is you genotype all your uh, AMD patients into one of these three categories. You genotype all your controls into uh, one of these categories, and you see what the percentage of or how those uh, genotypes play out in the two different groups. And what we and and all the others before us have found, too, was that the C allele, 
whether that be the homozygous CC genotype or simply the presence of the C allele, meaning both the homozygote CCs and the heterozygote TCs, were much more prevalent in the AMD population than they were in the control population. For example, the frequency of the C allele in the controls was 34%, but the frequency of the C allele in the AMD patients was 55%. And this comes out most significantly when you look for the percentage of patients who have the at-risk CC genotype in controls. In the regular population, it's about 10%. In our case, it was 95 in the, our AMD patients, greater than 30% of our patients had the CC genotype, so more than three times. And you use these figures to create an odds ratio for the risk of association with AMD. So for having patients with one C allele were, in our study, 2.1 times more likely to have AMD patients with both copies of the C allele were six and a half times more likely to have AMD. And these sorts of odds ratios fit in with the general studies of, you know, about three, an odds ratio of three with a decent confidence interval for the first C allele and an odds ratio of approximately six for homozygous CC patients. Meaning that a homozygous CC patient is about six times more likely to meet the diagnostic criteria for AMD than a patient who is homozygous TT. Absolutely correct. There was one of your subgroup comparisons for whom uh, the results did not reach statistical significance. Can I get you just to talk a little bit about that? We, we looked to see if there was a, a difference in the percentage of patients in for each of the genotypes, CCTC and TT, in the percentage of patients who had exudative age-related macular degeneration. And we didn't find a difference in our study population. But when you go back and realize that I believe it was 83% of all of our patients, all of our AMD patients, had exudative macular degeneration, then it becomes not surprising that in this uh, since such a high percentage of all patients seen had uh, exudative AMD, it would be unlikely with these numbers that we would find a difference among the three genotypes. And the, fact, the reason that such a high percentage of our AMD patients had advanced AMD is because we are a retinal practice and most of the, a lot of the people that are referred to us are for treatment purposes. So that, that's really not surprising. Um, the complement factor H variant has been associated with neovascular AMD alone and with non-neovascular AMD alone. So it seems to be, uh, the association seems to hold true no matter which kind it is. What we did find that was, I think, most interesting uh, in terms of our phenotypic analysis is in the, the type of lesion that was present, uh, which the type of neovascular lesion which was present, which did vary among the three CFH genotypes. Typically, um, so there's a, a predominantly classic choroidal neovascularization in which if you look on a fluorescein angiogram, you see the 
outline of the, you see hyperfluorescence typically outlining the, the neovascularization early in the angiogram, and then that leaks uh, or shows uh, leakage on the angiogram late. Uh, so that is early hyperfluorescence followed by leakage. There's also an occult neovascularization, again defined angiographically, where if you look early on the angiogram, you cannot identify the source. You don't see hyperfluorescence early. And then later on in the angiogram, there is leakage, meaning that there are vessels leaking, but by definition, they're occult because you can't identify them. And that's a, a kind of a standard angiographic way to separate out uh, neovascular lesions. And they can be predominantly classic, greater than 50% classic, or 100% occult, or uh, minimally classic, meaning that there's less than a 50% classic component. We divided these into predominantly classic and occult and found that there was a big difference in the number. Uh, basically, with each additional C allele, there was a two times more likely chance that the patient had a predominantly classic lesion. Um, associating, uh, therefore, the presence of the C allele with that type of neovascular lesion. And typically, classic lesions are thought to be, their natural history is thought to be more progressive. So we thought it was interesting that the at-risk allele was associated with the more aggressive type of lesion. Um, this also was uh, recently shown in, a, in another couple of papers that did some phenotypic analysis. This study strikes me as one that would be important in the uh, context of the of the clinic, can I have you just sort of walk me through what the workflow was in in, in the uh, clinic setting of patients coming in for a mouthwash DNA sampling? Sure. Well, there's some there's some significant advantages to the mouthwash. Um, that is that can be done very quickly. The other advantage in collecting samples in a retina practice is that all of our patients are dilated. So as you know, a patient comes in, is uh, checked in and is seen by the technician to get their vision and their, their history and, and, uh, uh, and chief complaint, and then they are dilated. And then they have typically at least a 20 to 30 minute wait while their eyes dilate, and then the attending physician sees them. Um, that window provides a that 20 to 30 dilation minute dilation window provides a perfect opportunity to ask patients if they would be willing to participate in a research study. And during that time, uh, in this case, for this particular study, uh, Sean Edelstein was, a, again, a resident at uh, Washington University, and he would... Um, with the approval of the attendings from the Barnes Retina Institute, um, during the dilation period, he would he would identify charts of, of AMD patients who would be good for uh, inclusion in the study, and also age match. That is, we used people over the age of 60 who were known not to have macular degeneration, and of course, all the people during the course of their examination had a full dilated retinal exam and a, a complete ophthalmologic exam. So the the phenotype was known. So Sean would uh, ask these people if they would be willing to participate in the study. He would carefully explain the study, uh, obtain informed consent from them uh, with our standard um, 
consent form approved by the Research Protection Office, uh, explained to them that the research was not part of their uh, clinical care and would have no impact whatsoever on their treatment and asked if they wanted to participate. And we were floored by the high percentage of people who wanted to participate in the study. It's pretty easy to ask somebody to rinse with some mouthwash and spit in a tube uh, rather than uh, subject themselves to a blood draw or get sent to a lab for a blood draw. So that made that part of it easy for us. And the patients were, I mean, if you talk to people about the condition and you say, and, and even in this study, you're telling people, this may not provide you with any information at all. You have macular degeneration. If you, we do your genotyping for you, it's not going to tell you that you're more likely to get macular degeneration because you've got it. But so many people were willing to participate because, you know, if this helps you guys uh, learn anything about the condition and help people in the future, then I'm all for it. And so Sean would have them, after the consent was signed, um, you take the, it's, and it's scope mouthwash that works. We had individual uh, wrapped, you know, sealed uh, scope bottles that we had purchased. We broke the seal on those and had patients take about half of that um, into uh, their mouth, and we timed them to rinse for a minimum of 30 seconds. Uh, it was important that prior to doing this, they had not eaten or chewed gum or tobacco um, within the past hour. It just leads to too many food particles and messes up the, the uh, making of the DNA. Uh, but it wasn't a problem for most people, and they, uh, they would rinse and then spit into a 50-mil cup or uh, a tube. Uh, we would seal that, label it, um, and then code it for processing so that you know, eventually the, the identifying information was removed. And that was good at room temperature, actually, for a day or two uh, and would be always transported that day back to the lab, and then the lab uh, would make the DNA and do the genotyping. And so the nice thing about it was, you know, a patient would come in, they would be seen by the technician, they're waiting anyway, and as the technicians learned what Sean was doing, they would help him identify patients, and they would say, I'm through if you want to talk to this one, and that patient would lose absolutely no time whatsoever uh, in their office experience the attending physician who was seeing the patients later uh, were not affected at all because the patients were, had already been sampled and were already ready for them at the appropriate time. So it worked out really, really nicely. And the patients left with better smelling breath. Absolutely. And I would always give them the remainder of the uh, scope just as a parting gift. That's funny. In, in, in your own practice now, apart from this study, what do you do? Uh, do, you, do you sample patients? Not separate from the study. Right now, I don't, I mean, the, more, the most exciting things that we're doing right now are involving, as I mentioned, response to treatment. And we're looking at the CFH genotype and some other AMD variants that have been um, identified, the HTRA1 gene, the, the locus on 10Q26, LOC387715. Um, those are, are both in the same area. We're genotyping some patients for those and looking at how they responded to treatment for neovascular AMD. We've, we've looked retrospectively at some patients who had PDT 
in the past. Uh, we've most recently looked at patients who have been treated with uh, bevacizumab for AMD, and we're now currently involved in a study looking at patients who have been treated with ranibizumab or lucentis for AMD and seeing if they're if, for instance, the CC patients respond worse or better. One final question, and I, I, I think it's probably right now more of a hypothetical question, but let's say that a patient comes into your office and you know for whatever reason, you, you know that the patient is CC or is TC. Is that information going to have any impact on your therapeutic plan for that patient? I don't think it should yet. One could potentially foresee, and this is you know, future right now, that when we have a better handle on this, we know that genes A, B, C, and D are all involved in attributable risk for AMD, that a patient could come into the office and be screened, give one sample, that would be screened for the potential genes, and then that would play into their risk factors. What we have to remember is if you're telling somebody that they have a genetic variant that makes them three or six times more likely to get AMD, that's just one piece of the puzzle. The other thing that you're supposed to be telling this patient is that we know that if you stop smoking, your risk of having AMD will drop precipitously. Uh, we know a little bit about, um, from the age-related eye disease study, the original, that if you have early changes, that taking a certain combination of uh, vitamin supplements will decrease your risk of progressing to AMD. And I think it's going to be up to scientists and clinicians in the future to put all this information together. I think that it's easy for clinicians to see the ARED data and to see, to see how that fits in. The genetic data, the big papers have been published in Science, um, Nature Genetics. Uh, the most recent last week, uh, looking at, at C3, another complement gene, was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, but these are wonderful journals, but slightly off the beaten path of the uh, ophthalmologist who's reading the current clinical literature. And I think one of the nice things about um, this sort of thing is getting the information out about what the genetic associations mean and what they don't mean. It's a very exciting beginning to the story uh, but it doesn't mean at this point that we know that you should change things or do things differently. I can foresee in the future how you most certainly might and incorporate that in with all the other data that you have about environmental factors. Milam, thank you very much. Sure. I enjoyed it. Milam Brantley is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Barnes Retina Institute at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. His paper, Clinical Phenotypes Associated with a Complement Factor H, Y402H Variant in Age-Related Macular Degeneration, is in press in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. And now a question from one of our listeners. Hello, this is Eric Snyder, 
in Holland, Michigan. And I have a question slash comment regarding uh, program 115, Wavefront Optimized Service Ablation versus LASIK. Um, at the end of the podcast, there's some mention that advanced service ablation may be better for older patients. And it, uh, my question is that um, since older patients more frequently have dry eyes and younger patients have a more rapid um, healing and possible haze formation, that maybe advanced service ablation may actually be more suited for older patients due to decreasing uh, symptoms of dry eyes following LASIK and would like uh, your guest comments regarding that. Thank you. And the response from Dr. Randleman. This is Brad Randleman uh, from Emory University uh, regarding my previous podcast about uh, wavefront optimized surface ablation and LASIK. There's definitely an indication for surface ablation in older patients as well for the reasons uh, that the caller mentions. Uh, The main uh, focus of our uh, recommendation for surface ablation in younger patients stems from their increased risk for postoperative ectasia given the potential for very subtle topographic abnormalities in young patients to become more manifest topographic abnormalities in older patients, meaning that uh, younger patients often don't have uh, real definitive clinical abnormalities in their topographies, but these may develop over time. And so from a safety standpoint, it may be more conservative to perform surface ablation on any borderline patients, especially if they're younger. Uh, the, uh, it is true that younger patients may have uh, more haze formation after surface ablation treatments. However, the uh, recent prophylactic use of mitomycin C, even in short duration, such as 12 seconds, has for the most part mitigated this response. Uh, However, I do agree with the caller that older patients also may be uh, good candidates for surface ablation, especially given the increased risk of epithelial defect formation uh, with uh, LASIK flap creation. Thank you very much. Ask questions of Dr. Brantley or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.